Mardi Gras New Orleans.com tells us New Orleanians who do it right never have to worry about post Christmas letdown. That's because the day that to most of the world is the 12th and final day of Christmas is recognized as 12th night in the city. The first day of the carnival season. Quite literally, carnival begins at the moment when Christmas ends. And Jennifer Vaught follows up by telling us Reed Mitchell argues New Orleans Mardi Gras is so often traced to its French or African Caribbean roots that it is sometimes forgotten that Anglo-Americans lived in Louisiana with festive traditions of their own. Both Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night and the Feast of the Epiphany celebrations by the group the Twelfth Night Revelers, the second oldest Mardi Gras crew in New Orleans, formally organized in 1870, include holiday practices of consuming cakes and ales and appointing a Lord of Misrule. Shakespeare in Twelfth Night and the Twelfth Night Revelers in New Orleans appropriate and adapt similar folk carnivalesque traditions surrounding the festival of Twelfth Night Connections abound between the play and its larger cultural context, extending from medieval England and Europe to the post-Civil War southern region in America. Although it is unclear whether or not the Twelfth Night Revelers selected their title with the intention of alluding to Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, we know that the names of both this Shakespearean play and the New Orleans crew refer to the Feast of Epiphany celebrated on January 6th. This date, which marks the end of the Christmas season, denotes the beginning of the carnival period that culminates with Mardi Gras. That from an essay by Jennifer Vaught titled Twelfth Night and the New Orleans Twelfth Night Revelers. So here we are, lo, those many weeks since Twelfth Night, here on February 21st, Mardi Gras, and we'll soon learn about a production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night that transfers the play to the southern United States. Not to New Orleans, though, but to the Florida Keys. The King's College Theatre Department in Wilkes-Barre continues its decades-long tradition of producing Shakespeare during the academic year, and this year it's Twelfth Night. Dave Reynolds, chair of the theatre department, directs, and we had a chance to speak with him by phone about King's and Shakespeare and their 2023 vision of the play. We are very, very proud of our tradition of, of Shakespeare at, at King's. This is actually our 73rd annual Shakespearean production. We started way back in 1951 with the production of Julius Caesar. And so this production of Twelfth Night will be our 73rd. And I think if I did my math correctly, this will be the fourth time that Twelfth Night appears on a King's Theater season. You may not be using it this time, but you actually have a thrust stage. Yeah, we sure do. We have a thrust, which dates back to the beginning of, I think, 1964 was the first show that was on the thrust. And then, of course, that thrust didn't make it through the flood in 72. So we had another one that was built right after that. And then we have another one that was built probably around 2010, 2011. That's all been modeled on that original thrust, which was modeled on the thrust at the Guthrie Theater in uh, Minneapolis and also after the open stage thrust in in Stratford at the the Stratford Festival of Canada. 
So, uh, yes, we are, we are using a modified thrust this time. It'll still be the three-quarter seating with the, the audience on three sides, but our set designer, Alan Bach, has created a thrust stage, but not the thrust stage. <laughs> and when you tell us that there have been former performances of Twelfth Night, we can assume that over the years, the approach, the interpretation to this particular play will be maybe quite different. Yeah, I think so. From uh, from the research I've done, which is all through you know archival searches of newspaper clippings and production photos, most of the productions of Twelfth Night look uh, like they were somewhat traditional in an Elizabethan sort of way. I know the latest production that was done in the mid 2000s was sort of like a hybrid traditional and and some modern ideas. So our our take on it this year is is profoundly not traditional. <laughs> I will say. Let's get right to it then. Give us a sense of the plot and how you're going to play with it. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's uh, one of Shakespeare's best-loved comedies. You know, it sort of involves twin brothers and sisters who both think that they've died in a shipwreck, but neither of them have actually died in a shipwreck. And uh, the sister, Viola, then disguises herself as a man, who, who she calls herself Cesario, to go work for the Duke of the island of Illyria. And uh, her job for the Duke is to go and woo the Lady Olivia and Lady Olivia, falls in love with Cesario, who she, she thinks is a boy, all the while Cesario has fallen in love with Duke Orsino, and things unravel and fall apart until the end where everything is sort of made right and the, you know, the right people couple up. You know, all that against the backdrop of lots of colorful characters, uh, the, the drunk Sir Toby and his, his friend uh, Sir Andrew, and the conniving uh, Mariah, and then we've got uh, Malvolio, who's sort of the uptight servant who uh, they all play a trick on, and then sort of really abuse in a way that is funny to the audience, but also you kind of feel for Mavoli a little bit. And then there's Feste the Fool. It's, it's, a crazy, it's a crazy island of people and lots of disguised romance and, you know, your typical Shakespeare comedy. So you have to pay attention, but uh, just in case you don't, we've got lots of jokes in there. And we know when you start talking about men playing women, women playing men, and falling for each other and all of those gender identity issues, that's something that's very timely. I think absolutely, right? And I think the play does kind of play around uh, a lot with gender identity. There's some really great scenes where you kind of have to, like, remind yourself that you're watching Viola, who is a woman disguised as a man, trying to woo Olivia, but she's talking to Olivia with, obviously, Viola's mind and Viola's lived experiences. And it's really kind of interesting to, to take that apart. I mean, likewise, there's also, you know, Orsino is a bit full of himself and has lots of Lots of lines about how, you know, women can't love the same way that men do because they lack retention. I think that's one of the, it's a very funny way the young actor is delivering that. But yeah, I think it plays a lot with gender identity and gender roles as they would have been in Shakespeare's time and how they relate to today as well. We heard you talk about Illyria, and we know that in Midsummer Night's Dream, they go off into the forest. There are these places where Shakespeare takes his characters, and things can happen there, maybe where they wouldn't elsewhere. Is Illyria the fact that it's an island important? I think so. I mean, in our in our production, we we sort of laid our Illyria somewhere in a nondescript Florida Key, if you will, sort of a tropical island where life is kind of a little a little slower for the people that live there. There is there is actually an Illyria, but I believe the research we did it's sort of a like a Baltic area. You know, but I, I think you hit on something that this, this Illyria is, is a mystical place, very much as Midsummer would be or the Forest of Arden. It's a place where stars can cross and, and the audience will just sort of go along with it. When you talk about a non-traditional production, how do you dress these characters? 
So it's it's very modern. We have a really, really talented costume designer, Jennifer Ranieri, and the way that we're taking it is uh, Orsino and Olivia sort of are at competing resorts on the island. So each of their people kind of have a, a, a theme, you know, in modern dress. So the servants are all people that, you know, Malvolio is dressed very similarly in tone to, to Olivia and, and vice versa. And then there's the, the outlying people. So Feste the Fool, my inspiration for him was uh, Wavy Gravy for the way we wanted Feste to look. Just someone who, you know, kind of doesn't care. Who's someone who's just sort of out there, outlandish dress. So very the motley for me has become tie-dye, uh, kind of hippie world. And uh, like, like I said, not, not really worrying or about what society thinks, just going with it. So that's where the wavy gravy idea came up to me. And I have to say, when I, when I mentioned wavy gravy to many of these college students and they looked at me like I you know, had lobsters coming out of my ears, I was like, oh, gosh, I guess I am getting old. Sir Toby and Sir Andrew, we are very much modeling on characters from The Big Lebowski, which is one of my favorite movies. Just sort of like general, general slackers who, uh, who take it easy because everyone else can't. So there's a lot of pop culture references that we're playing with, and it, it should feel like a place that you've been before, but also a place that maybe you never have, if you know what I mean. Do you use incidental music or sound design? Yes, absolutely. We're using lots of, lots of music, and since we're modernizing it, everything's sort of fair game. So we're, uh, we're playing around with a lot of different reggae and ska music. I was very motivated by some of the late 60s, 70s Jamaican ska, so like Toots the Maytals and things along those lines, but then there's also a fair amount of Grateful Dead that we'll find, and lots of different things. We're, uh, like I said, leaning into the pop culture references in a lot of ways, so sound is another design element that I think will help bring us to that world. Now, we often hear that the fools in Shakespeare are really the truth-tellers. They sort of cut through and have the ability, because they are in that role, the role of the jester and so forth, to call a spade a spade. Absolutely. And Feste is a wonderful example of that. Our very talented young actor named Jordan Mailer, who's playing Feste, and you're absolutely right. So it's, the witticism that Feste has, I think, is he might be my favorite clown in Shakespeare. The, the Fool in Lear is a close second, but that's kind of a different sort of thing. I had the opportunity years ago with Gaslight to play Feste, and I fell in love with the part. So, yeah, he gets away with saying things to Olivia and to everybody else that nobody else could get away with saying. And he just, one of my favorite things about the character is when he meets another character who can kind of match his wits, he just gets so excited because no one really can. So, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful character. That's sort of, I think, he kind of, for me, cuts through all of the world. Right? He visits Orsino's court, and he's Olivia's fool and has conversations with Viola and with Toby. He is the one character, I think, that, that bridges all the gaps. And we hear sometimes people talking about this play as Shakespeare being aware of playmaking, that there's something about the kind of observations that are made. I'm playing a role, that sort of thing, and that he's considering in certain ways theater. Oh, I think absolutely, right? I mean, you know, specifically with Viola, Viola is constantly commenting on the fact that she is, she is not as she, as she appears or she is not as people would, would think she is. So I think that's, that's very much present there. And then there's also there's a, a fair amount of play acting with Toby and Mariah and Fabian are playing the jokes on Malvolio. They're very much taking on a character to convince Malvolio that he's been possessed by the devil or whatever. So there, there's a lot of... And also, like, uh, Toby and Fabian play tricks on Andrew and, and play tricks on Violet. So there's, there's a lot of, like, meta being in character for the characters in the show. Is it a long play? We know some of the tragedies go on not quite like Wagner or maybe like Wagner, but how about that? 
Well, to be honest with you, I, I don't know the answer of how long it's going to be. We try to keep them between 2 and a half and 2.45 because we, we also have a wonderful tradition of doing uh, matinees for high schools. And just, you know, the logistics of getting a high school in and having them see a show in the morning and get back usually by lunchtime, we try to keep it around 2 and a half. But we're, we are currently in the phase of rehearsals right now where they're working on lines, so everything plays a little bit longer. But I think what I would say will almost certainly be true is that it will play really, really quickly. These actors are so excited for all of the comedy that we're bringing to it that I don't think this is going to feel like a museum piece dour Shakespeare. I think that the audience will be right with it the entire time. And then let's step back again. We talked about it in terms of gender roles or identity, Dave, but are there other things that speak to us today in this play? Oh, I mean, for sure. First of all, I think fun. I think to take it apart in sort of a, an English class kind of way, I think there's thematically there's lots to say about class and people that are rich enough to have the leisure to do nothing. Uh, I, I think Shakespeare is really kind of thumbing his nose at bourgeois society, right? I think with Olivia. And then I think that someone like Toby, who just is kind of like the, the classic trope from the Italian comedia of like the parasite character. He sort of just lives off of everyone else. He, he's there, he drinks, he, he smokes, he's, he's just there to have a good time. And people fund him doing that, right? So I think there's a lot of tropes that still exist in modern storytelling that you're going to see here. And like I said, I think that a lot of the pedigree of this goes back to things like the Italian commedia and even Greek comedy and Roman comedy. You all do it with such a plum, and yet you know your Shakespeare, too. Thank you so much, yeah. And we're blessed to have a, a, several professors from the English department that have been helping us, Dr. Mike Little and Dr. Megan Lloyd. You're right, we're, we're taking the time that these students are... My favorite part of doing Shakespeare with these students is watching them fall in love with it. it. I've said so many times that, you know, he wrote these plays to be seen, and I think he would be blown away by the fact that people are sitting in classrooms studying his work, that he was just, you know, writing to pay his rent. So we, we, we love it. Dave, tell us when you play and remind people how to get to the auditorium and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So the show runs February 22nd through the 26th. There's evening performances uh, that Wednesday through Saturday at 7.30, and then we have a matinee on Sunday the 26th at 2. And it's at the theater here at King's, which is 133 North River Street in Wilkes-Barre. And if you want to learn more about it, you can visit us on the web at King's. You can search for us on the website, or you can get your tickets by going to brownpapertickets.com and just searching for King's College Twelfth Night. Dave Reynolds, chair of the Department of Theater at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, who directs Twelfth Night by Shakespeare. And they will celebrate February 22nd through the 26th, shows in the evening at 7.30, the 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and 25th, with a matinee on the 26th at 2 o'clock. It's in the George P. Maffei Theater on the King's College campus, 133 North River Street. And you can find them on the web, kings.edu, kings.edu. You can get your tickets beforehand on brownpapertickets.com or visiting the King's Theater on the web or social media. That's kings.edu, kings.edu. Twelfth Night by Shakespeare, February 22nd through the 25th at 7.30 each evening and February 26th at 2 in the afternoon. 